0: From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 277 for the week of April 10th, 2014. The Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo malata Michael Bowling, and Tony Spatel. In this segment, Michael talks about a recent presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum that celebrates Disney animation. Michael?
1: Thank you, Tom. Hmm? Recently, the Walt Disney Family Museum held two presentations celebrating animation. With the recent success of Disney's Frozen, this seems like a good time to see how the process of making animated films evolved at the Disney studio. Now, many of us know Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, but most of us do not know the directors. Disney historian Don Perry and Disney Pixar animator and director Pete Docter explain the job of the director and how films generally have the creative stamp of the director. Um, Walt Disney was the sole creative leader and dominated the stories, but the directors played an invaluable role. Walt didn't like directors getting a lot of credit if a film did well, because Walt saw the film as a team effort. After losing Oswald the Lucky Rabbit his and his animators when they were hired away by a competitor, Walt did not want anyone being indispensable. However, if a film was a failure... Walt gave the director full credit. <laughs> there was a great story where they say Walt gave you full credit in the theater lobby. I mean I mean like right when it was screened. He was right there and he told the director everything that was wrong with it. So there was one director that the 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 short, the cartoon <coughs> short did so badly. He didn't want to hear it. He just couldn't deal with it. He couldn't deal with Walt. So before the short ended, he left the theater, got in his car, was driving out of the parking lot, and Walt was standing right there at the driveway with his arms crossed. Wow. And told him everything that had gone wrong with the film. So, so anyway, so Walt enjoyed the pre-production work of filmmaking, which included the storyboarding, writing the story, the inspirational artwork, but not the production of the films, which he left to the directors. And the process for making animated cartoons developed over the years. At first, studios just animated what they could draw. Then they began to talk through the story, then animated it. The storyboarding process in the form as it is known today was developed at the Walt Disney Studio during the early 1930s by animator Webb Smith. Leica reels came into use, and a Leica reel is made from animated stills, or sometimes preliminary artwork or storyboard frames, and they're arranged with the recorded material, the recorded voices of the actors. And the running reels, these were invented by Wilfred Jackson um at the Disney Studios, and they became standard in 1934. Now, Disney relied primarily on storyboards and would approve films or sequences based on a pitch, you know, like a sales pitch that they had to do. So Pixar and Disney today use reels because um, you never know whether it'll work until you see it on reels. And sometimes these reels are included in the Blu-ray extras. So they're always really interesting to, to watch. Um, directors. That
0: pilot episode or something like that, right?
1: Yeah. And, and, or when they say it's a deleted sequence Mm -hmm. and you watch it, sometimes all it is is those reels with the storyboard sequences and the recordings of either the animator doing the voices or actually of the voice actors themselves, um, recording the sequence. Now, directors are now responsible for pre-production, production, design of characters, sets and props, layout and cinematography, um, actors, animation, um, the music, the timing of the animation and music, the sound and the lighting. And the interesting thing is, uh, Pete Doctor talked about director failure and the success rate at Pixar is less than 50%. So they say, why replace the creative author of a film? And Pete said, "When there's a lack of forward momentum, um, making a film depends upon successful relationships with the crew, the writers, and the studio. And probably the most famous, most recently repla- recent replacement of a director was Brenda Chapman being replaced for Disney's Bra- uh, Disney Pixar's Brave. Um, you might remember it was originally called The Bear and the Bow." And from and she was let go from that film, but she was given still. If you look at the credit, she was given the director's credit for it, and then the person that took over from her was given co-director's credit. And they, a lot of the comments from people working on the film at the time, it seemed that they felt her intentions were a little more off the wall, or maybe uh, more daring or interesting and not a guaranteed sell for Pixar and they believe that's may have been what led for a change in the director and a change in the storyline and a change in the title but this led to a lot of um, internet debate you might remember because she w- was the first woman director and there was a lot of anger over the first female director in Pixar's history being let go from a film. So it can be, uh, there can be a lot of controversy surrounding removing a, a director from a film, but it's not uncommon. Um, now the director's position evolved at Disney. Originally, animators came up with ideas they could draw and just animate them, like I said earlier. Walt Disney came up with ideas his animators couldn't draw and challenged them. So Walt Disney first called his directors story men. And Ub Iwerks was the first, um, when he became the director of Silly Symphonies. And Burt Gillette was the second Story Manor director, and he directed the Mickey Mouse series. Now, the directors had to be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of the film, even if it was approved by Walt, and they had to work on the continuity of the film. Now, the funny thing is, Walt didn't think that directing was much of a challenge, so he directed the um, short, The Golden Touch, which you might remember was The Story of Midas. And that short didn't do well because Walt didn't see the weaknesses in the film. So Walt realized he was best at pre-production work and at being a story man, that is working on the development of the story itself. Now, for the short Mickey's amateurs, Walt tried to combine two layout men and three animators and to make the short without a director, and Walt was surprised when it didn't work. So he devised the production unit, and this included a director, an assistant director, a layout man, a story man, and a composer, and that's still what a production unit is today, except it now today also includes an editor and the first um disney directors and and i'm just going to run through them because these are folks that we should know because they really they really set the uh sort of the style for disney animation that we still enjoy today um bert Gillette, he was born in elmira new york in 1891 he came to disney in 1929 and in the summer of 1929, he was working with Ub Irix as a storyman or director. And at the time, directors worked with the musicians to develop a film. Um, Bert's most famous shorts were Flowers and Trees, which won an Academy Award and was the first color short and Three Little Pigs. And Bert let the animators have more creativity than some of the other directors. But he was stubborn and would go behind Walt's back to get his own way. <laughs> And he left Disney after his contract ended. He returned to direct Lonesome Ghosts, but left again. He ultimately left the industry and passed away in 1971. He was known for his erratic behavior, and there was some speculation that he may have been bipolar, which was the reason for his behavior. Um, Wilfred Jackson, and, um, he was born in Chicago in 1906. His nickname was Jackson, J-A-X-O-N. He desperately wanted to be an animator, and he called the Disney Studio. Now, Walt's ahead of his studio, but he answers the phone. And, and he hired Wilfred for one week to test him out. So Jackson helped to determine how to synchronize sound to make Steamboat Willie. Jackson became a director by accident. He animated for a few years, but he couldn't keep up with the newer animators. So Walt made him a director, even though he had no experience. However, Disney historians consider Jackson to be one of the best directors um Disney had because of his talent for integrating music and, and action. His first films was The Castaways, and Jackson went, on to direct 35 shorts, more than any other director. Three of which won Academy Awards: um, *The Tortoise and the Hare*, *The Country Cousin*, and *The Old Mill*. Probably the greatest example of his skill in seeking action to music was *The Band Concert*, starring Mickey Mouse. And as mentioned earlier, he devised the pencil test. He devised those um, sort of like those um, running reels that are still used today. And Jackson directed the animation and live-action sequences for Song of the South, and he produced and directed animated shows for the Disneyland television series, and he passed away in 1988. And Dave Hand was born in New Jersey in 1990, and he was known as a delegator. He started with Disney two days after Ub Iwerks in 1930 and became a director in 1932. And Dave was very sensitive to story material and could read Walt's mind on what was needed for the film. He directed several Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphony shorts, including The Flying Mouse, Who Killed Cock Robin, Three Orphan Kittens, and Through the Mirror, and directed Snow White and Bambi. He became the studio production manager second only to Walt Disney for responsibility in running the studio. However, when it became clear Walt, who was younger than Hand, never intended to leave the studio or share power, Dave left in 1944 to work at the J. Arthur Rank Studio in England, and he passed away in 1986. Um, ben Sharpstein was born in Tacoma, Washington in 1895, but he was raised up here in Northern California in Alameda, and he was contracted by Walt Disney in 1929 and work at the studio Upon the recommendation of Bert Gillette. And Ben's talents were highly regarded by Walt. And to give you an idea how highly regarded he was, Walt was paid fifty dollars a week. Roy thirty-five dollars a week. Ub Iwerks and Bert Gillette $90 a week. And Ben Sharpstein $125 a week. So he was the highest paid. Um Ben directed 21 cartoon shorts, including Mickey's Follies, The Chain Gang, and Mickey's Review, and worked on all the films from Snow White to Alice in Wonderland and 12 of the 13 true-life adventure films. In 1933, at Walt's request, he established the in-house animation training program and acted as a talent scout for animators. Um, ben Sharpstein passed away on December twentieth, 1980, in Calistoga, California, where he founded the Sharpstein Museum, which is dedicated to the area's pioneers. Jerry Clyde Geronimi he was born in Italy in 1901, and he joined Disney as an animator in 1931 and worked on the Silly Symphonies. His 1941 short, a Paw, won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film, He directed the remake of The Unkly Duckling and Victory Through Air Power and The Three Amigos. Geronimo moved into directing feature-length animated films after the end of World War II. He was one of the directors on Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and 101 Dalmatians. He knew Walt. Um. He knew... Sort of what, of what, what Walt wanted in the film. But he knew what to follow and what not to follow. So as to keep the costs down. It's the reported though that many of the animators did not like to work with Geronimo. And actually some of them almost had it written into, they had agreements that whatever their assignments were, they would not be assigned to Geronimo. Um, and Geronimo passed away in 1989. Um, Jack Kinney was uh, born in Utah in 1909. He was hired as an in-betweener at Disney and contributed to 11 features and many shorts. He was part of what was called the Screwball Camp with Ward Kimball and Roy Williams, who went on to be the Musketeer in the Mickey Mouse Club. Um, He served as director of most of the package films during the 1940s, including The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, and The Adventures of Ichapod and Mr. Toad, and also directed the wartime propaganda film Der Fuhrer's Face. Um, In the mid-1950s, he supervised new animation used to tie some of the old shorts together for Disney's television efforts. Jack developed the How-To series with Goofy because the voice of Goofy, Pinto Colvig, left the studio and they needed to keep the character of Goofy alive. Because if you remember, in those series, there's a narrator, but Goofy never speaks. Um, Jack Kinney was an innovator and asked animators to quickly hand-draw their scenes so he could put them together to determine their pacing, then hand them back to the animators to clean up. And his shorts are the least Disney of all the shorts. Um, And he was known for helping out in weak films and sort of rescuing them. He left Disney to start his own animation studio, Jack Kinney Productions, and passed away in 1992. And Wolfgang Woolley Reitherman, he was born in Munich, Germany in 1909. And he was one of the nine old men and worked at the Disney Studios for 48 years he began working at the Disney studio in 1934 as an animator and worked on several cartoon shorts. He animated the climactic dinosaur fight in Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring in Fantasia, the headless horseman chase in the Legend of Sleepy Hollow section in The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Um, he, he animated the crocodile in Peter Pan <laughs> and Maleficent as a dragon in Sleeping Beauty. And beginning with 1961's 101 Dalmatians, he served as Disney's chief animation director. Now, Woolley began directing as Walt started working on the live-action films and the development of Disneyland. Um, he directed several animated features films, including 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, Robin Hood, and The Rescuers. He's also known for reusing animation in movies directed by himself. He would use the footage from another film and have the action reanimated for the new film. Uh, um, you can really notice this, like, in the Jungle Book and the Aristocats. And, for instance, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the dance sequence between Snow White and, um, like, D- Dopey. Take a look at the dance sequence between Robin Hood and Maid Marion in the film Robin Hood. It's exactly the same. How funny. Yeah, so all three of Wooly's sons, Bruce, Richard, and Robert, provided voices for Disney characters, including Mowgli in the Jungle Book, Christopher Robin in Winnie the Pooh, and um, Wart in Sword in the Stone. And Wooly passed away in 1985. And uh, Pete Doctor concluded that most Disney directors are not well known because they didn't make their own films; they made Waltz films. But they had to make big decisions critical to the success of the films, and their work influences today's directors. Now the other presentation was hosted by Disney historian and author John Canemaker, and this was on women in animation. And the panel included Brenda Chapman, and she's the artist director. Yeah, I know. Ironic, huh? She's the artist director, writer, story developer, and first woman director of an animated feature. She directed The Prince of Egypt and Brave. And she was a story trainee on Disney's animated film, The Little Mermaid. She was one of several key story artists on Disney's Beauty and the Beast, where she worked closely with future Disney director Roger Allers to define many of the key sequences and motifs used in the film. She later served as head of story, the first woman to do so in an animated feature film for Disney's The Lion King. She also worked in story development for The Rescuers Down Under, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Fantasia 2000. Um, Claire Keen was on the panel. She's a costume illustrator for Enchanted and did the visual development, um, for Tangled and Frozen. She's the daughter of Disney animator for feature, um, films, um, of Glenn Keen. Um, he worked on The Little Mermaid. Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Tarzan and Tangled. And she's the granddaughter of cartoonist Bill Keen, who was the creator of the family circus. So it definitely animations in her blood. Lorelei Bove, um, she worked on The Princess and the Frog doing visual development, color characters and costumes, props and backgrounds, as well as the end credit sequence art and design. She's worked on Tangled and the short The Ballad of Nessie, Winnie the Pooh, Prep and Landing, and Wreck-It Ralph, doing visual development. She was also the lead designer on Sugar Rush for Wreck-It Ralph. Lorelei has also illustrated the Toy Story picture book and The Princess and the Frog and Wreck-It Ralph Little Golden Books. And then finally, Jenny LaRue, she was um, the character layout artist for Tiny Toon Adventures, the story artist for How to Train Your Dragon, and um, the television special, Dragon's Gift of the Night Fury, the Goofy movie, The Road to El Dorado, House of Mouse, and Lilo and Stitch 2, and Peabody and Sherman. And... Basically, animation is still a male-dominated industry. And they talked about why aren't there more women in animation. And they believe that many know about animation, but they just don't have it on their radar as a career. And they talked about how they chose animation as a career. Um, Jenny LaRue went to CalArts in 1984, and she saw a student film The Birthday by Brenda Chapman, and she (laughs) cried. And Brenda Chapman went to Disney Films and sort of one day noticed that there were credits. And so she contacted a friend who worked in Disney feature films who told her about Cal Arts. And Claire Keen whilst in school discovered um, she loved to do development drawings but not animation. And she mentioned this to her father who told her that those jobs actually exist. So her father was working on Rapunzel at the time. So she showed her portfolio to Disney and was hired. The interesting thing is none of them referred to the film Rapunzel as Tangled. So um <laughs> I guess I guess they like the original title. Um Lorelei Bovis from Spain, she saw Fantasia and loved it. So she told her father, who's also an artist, she wanted to be an animator and he sort of went on Google and discovered CalArts. So she, now the interesting thing is, this is for all our younger listeners to, to learn from Lorelei. She wasn't accepted the first time, but she didn't let that stop her. She went to another school for three years and built her portfolio before she was finally accepted to CalArts. So it just shows don't give up on that dream, you just find another route to it. Now at that time that all of these women were, were starting CalArts, getting into animation, or getting into art, um, only Disney was doing feature animation. But after the success of The Little Mermaid and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, animation took off. And many of the teachers at CalArts were out of work or between projects. And at the time, there were only forty-four to six women in classes of 35 to 40 students. So then Claire Keane showed clips of her visual development art from Rapunzel, and she said the challenge was how to make Rapunzel relatable since she lived in a tower for 18 years, and people really couldn't relate to that. So she made Rapunzel messy and doing things people could relate to. So she created Rapunzel with having a fascination with birds who go into the outside world but return without getting eaten by monsters, to sort of the theme that Rapunzel had, you know, running. And so, um, and that's why Rapunzel in her tower painted murals with birds. Her father, Glenn, felt Rapunzel's hair represented her irrepressible spirit. So the town that um, Rapunzel enters was full of life, like Rapunzel, to show that Rapunzel belonged in that town. So when she finished her work on Rapunzel and took her artwork down from her walls, Claire cried because she felt like she was losing an old friend. She also worked on The Snow Queen, which that's what they called it. None of them called it Frozen. Um, but but they didn't know the details of the film or the characters. So Anna was originally someone who was jilted at the altar, which resulted uh-huh. in a closed-off personality. And the Snow Queen went through many changes. She was started out as a Beth Midler character, then as sort of an anti-main bipolar dramatic character, and then the Snow Queen and Anna then became sisters who were close and drifted apart. And it was sort of fun as she talked about these different the development of the characters, and and she showed all her different drawings that showed the personalities of the Snow Queen as she um, sort of metamorphosized through these different personalities into what, you know, she ultimately became as Elsa. And um, Claire said that it's liberating that the work you do isn't included in the film so that no one sees it. And Claire left Disney to work on a children's book, Once Upon a Gift, and that's scheduled to be released for Mother's Day 2015. But she does hope to be able to, to return to Disney. I mean, that is in her plans. But she, um, wanted to work on, on this children's book, and she, she couldn't do both. Right. So she sort of took a, a leave in order to work on it. Lorelei A. Bove um, started as a trainee on Princess and the Frog, and she said she learned a lot about color and costumes. Um, she worked on a prologue for an early version of Frozen and used as her inspiration for the artwork of the Russian lacquer boxes. And for Rapunzel, she worked on unifying the color palette and the costumes for that film. Her favorite film has been Wreck-It Ralph, and her inspiration for designing, um, Sugar Rush was Spanish architecture. And she said she also went to a candy convention for inspiration. <laughs> yes. So, and, and incorporated that into her drawings. And for the upcoming film, Big Hero Six, scheduled for release on November 7th, 2014, she's working on travel posters for the fictional city of San Francisco. I, I always have pro- problems pronouncing it. San Francisco, San Fransoi, it's a combination of San Francisco and <laughs> Tokyo. San Francisco, something like that. San francisco that's it, that's it. And I'll never get to say it again. <laughs> um, Brenda Chapman showed a clip of her work from Beauty and the Beast where um, Beauty bandages the beast after he's injured, saving her from the wolf attack. And in, in, in developing that scene, she put herself into Belle, imagining how she would handle the beast. So, um, and I just found it fascinating how they talked about where they got their inspiration for all of these scenes as they developed them for the storylines and the animators. Um, Brenda was hired by Disney in 1987 as a trainee on The Little Mermaid, and was told she was hired because they needed a woman. She was the right price and had six months to prove herself. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, welcome to Disney. But but she but she said the animators were fantastic and excellent mentors. Um, after The Little Mermaid, she worked on Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King as a story artist. Um, she found it exciting to be able to inspire um, animators. Um, the Baron de Beau, like I said, was later renamed Brave, was inspired inspired by her daughter. And a lot of personal emotion went into that film. Um, the crux of the relationship between Merida and her mother, Queen Eleanor is the scene where they both fight over marriage and Meredith slashes the tapestry and her mother throws the bow into the fire. And both characters are made to be sympathetic and both are right and wrong. And Brenda wanted to do a family film. Um, you know, that was very different from where, you know, usually a parent is is uh, has passed away and and there, it's an only child. She wanted to do a family film with a mother, father, and siblings where the conflict wasn't a result of them not loving each other. and 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 that's why she made the bear and the bow. Um, She said it was difficult being the only woman on the film and giving the men the mother's point of view. (laughs) And then Disney, marketing saw early reels of the film and asked, how are we going to sell a movie about two women arguing? So um, Brenda's proud of the film, and she believes it introduced a new era of heroines. And she said directing was challenging, especially working with departments she didn't fully understand, like special effects, but she learned. And because of her willingness to learn, she gained the respect of all of the people in those departments. Um, and, you know, she probably could have said things about Pixar and being released from the film, but, you know, she was very classy. She didn't go there at all. I mean, she had, she had nothing but... um overall good things to say you know about her time with them she never i don't think she intends to return to pixar i believe she's working for dreamworks now but um but i I just felt she she really handled herself well with them because i think everybody would have understood if she went a little more into the reason for being replaced as director um, Brenda would like to see more films with strong female protagonists. She said it's hard to hang on to a strong central emotional theme, though, when you have to please so many studio executives. <laughs> um, and Jenny LaRue showed a clip from Mr. Peabody and Sherman, which you might remember is based on the Jay Ward shorts from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was always one of my favorite yeah, mine too. cartoons as a little boy. I think you had to be a pretty sophisticated child to get the humor in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. And um and anyway, and she decided to make Mr. Peabody and Sherman uh, a father and son type of film. And then uh, they talked about what advice would they offer to young people getting into the animation field. And I think this advice would almost apply to any young person no matter what field they wanted to go into and you know on a on a broader sort of broader scope um, leave behind your preconceived notions of animation um, they said bring what you love and be true to what you think and put it in your characters rather than trying to guess what will please people and they said stay professional and don't try to force ideas down a director's throat because it will affect your career And they said, believe in yourself and be bold. They talked about what to include in a portfolio. And they said, include the things you are most proud of and best represent yourself. Um, Focus on the character drawing and what the character is trying to say and make sure it is coming through. Um, Adapt a story and give it your own rift. Make sure the images communicate and then at the end they displayed slides of Mary Blair's artwork that inspired them Um, and folks who don't know, Mary Blair did visual development for the Walt Disney Studios in the 1940s and 50s and the Walt Disney Family Museum is currently running an exhibit on her work. And the good thing is, you know, when they, when they went to CalArts, there were only four to five women in a class of, you know, 35 to 40. Um, CalArts student body is now comprised of 52% women. Wow. Yeah, so there's a nice increase now. And they say there's now definitely more opportunities for women in the field in the field of animation and in the field of filmmaking as well so um so yeah yeah that's nice and because i think and and i think we can see it in when you think of some of the later disney films especially the heroines i think we can see that i i I don't know i i probably have to ask you know mary joe and nancy i mean do you See, sort of an influence, more of a, a, a female influence in some of the latter Disney films?
2: Yeah. I think so. You, yeah. The women aren't waiting for the, the hero to save them, you know, or, um, they're, they're actively doing, even, even with Belle in Beauty and the Beast, was more of a, um, take charge type of person. But in the mm-hmm. latter films, you certainly see it with, even with Merida, that's supposed to be, have, be taking place in the, in the past and lately with, um, Frozen. And I think because it resonates with a lot of women, that's one of the reasons why it's so popular besides the music.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to say anything, um, negative about like our, the ones we are beloved, like, you know, Cinderella, Snow White. I think they reflect their era. And they reflect the early stories that they're based on. All right,
2: that's what I was gonna say is, you know, you look at the you look at the um, the trend of storytelling back then, you know, when women's roles were extremely different. And if you're trying to base a fairy tale and stay true to the fairy tale, it's very difficult. But you know, to, to give that empowerment. But Culturally, there's still empowerment that just isn't reflected. So, anyway, yes. That was my answer. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and it's funny, our, my granddaughter, who's just a few years younger than your children, Nancy, yeah. it's funny. Her two favorite princesses, and I find this interesting, it's Rapunzel and Snow White. And I hmm. thought it's fascinating because they're so different in personality. So, so I, I, I have absolutely no idea why. Um, those are her two favorites. But well, I think so.
2: Lily's a Snow- the- Lily loves Snow White as well, but she also likes, um, you know, some of the newer heroines. I mean, both of my girls are very fond of Rapunzel too. And I think that, um, with Snow White, she's just a nice girl. And, and mm-hmm. they stay true to that through the whole story. She's nice. She's helpful. And she comes across that way too when they meet the characters in the park. You know, it's a very different sort of... I don't know. It's just a very different... I mean, Aurora sleeps.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <She> <laughs> yeah when you think about, about it, Aurora has... She has very little screen time. And probably of... I've always thought this. Of all the princesses, her personality is probably the least developed.
2: Yes. There's pretty yeah. much not so, much to say past that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So, um, yeah, it's all about Maleficent, really, and, and the fairies in that Well, film. and Philip.
2: They do a lot so. about Philip.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. But the artwork is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> but now, now Walt Disney said animation can explain whatever the mind of man can conceive. So my hope is this segment gives us a greater appreciation for the work that goes into creating the films that bring joy and magic into our lives.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Disney Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.